we'll have our Bible study now from Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26. And we'll read verses 1 to 16. Proverbs 26, verses 1 to 16. It says, Like snow in summer and like rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting and like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool, as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. He cuts off his own feet and drinks violence, who sends a message by the hand of a fool. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb to the mouth of fools. Like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives honor to a fool. Like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Like an archer who wounds everyone, so is he who hires a fool, or who hires those who pass by. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, you might instruct us again Lord, on the way of the wise and those that are foolish. Lord, as you so clearly tell us in this passage, Lord, those attributes and characteristics, Lord, those virtues that are true of those who are foolish, Lord, who are wicked, Lord, who do not live by faith in the Son of God. Lord, may we reject such things. And Lord, we pray that we would crucify, Lord, these deeds that come from the flesh, Lord, that they would have no place in our life. Lord, that you might help us to overcome Lord, the desire to be in that way. Lord, we know that in some regards, so long as we remain in this life and so long as we remain in the flesh, Lord, that there are areas of our life in which we are very foolish. And Lord, we see that it is only through our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that we can have our foolishness taken away and that we can be made made, uh, wise and righteous in your sight. So Lord, we thank you for him and what he does for us. And we pray that the salvation that is found in him, Lord, that it might manifest itself also in our own lives, Lord, in the way that we live each and every day. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in Proverbs 26, he's laying out essentially in the first part, uh, the first 12 verses, are various attributes or characteristics that are true of a fool, right? This is what his primary task is, is to deal with the fool and what he is like, And in the book of Proverbs, we remember that the term fool is used as a synonym for a wicked man, for an unbeliever, for a godless man, right? These are all ways of describing the same thing. The book of Proverbs' favorite term to use to describe those 
who are unbelieving, who are not reconciled to God, is that of a fool, right? And there are certain attributes or characteristics that are true of the way that they live when a person is living a life of sin. In contrast to that is the wise man, right? And this is uh, what is set forth as a positive in terms of virtue, and it describes those things. And we do always need to be reminded that in our natural state, and left to our own devices, we would all be fools. We would all be fools and we have no hope at all. None of us can live rightly before God on our own. And even as believers, though there is in some regards, there is wisdom found in us and we do live a wise life in contrast to what's going on in the world, yet there still remains much foolishness in us, right? It's bound up within us until it is driven away completely by Christ, right? The wisdom being described in Proverbs is ultimately only found in Jesus Christ, in perfection. He's the only man who was a perfectly wise man, and it is his wisdom that is the source of our wisdom, that we become the wisdom of God in him, right? And we have that. But then we also want that wisdom to begin to manifest itself daily in our lives, the way that we interact with people, the way that we live before God, and that will happen in all children of God in some measure in this life, right? Though ultimately our hope is found only in Christ, and we must pray that God would continue to work within us, perfect our salvation, bring it to its completed state, and that we would go and progress from foolishness to wisdom, right? From foolishness to wisdom in this life, and this is describing for us what that looks like. So let's begin then in Proverbs 26, verse 1. Like snow in summer and like rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Here, both snow in the summer and rain in the harvest, right? These things are undesirable in their season, right? In the season. During the summer, when you need things to grow, when the person, especially in an agrarian society, we typically don't think in these terms because actually snow sounds quite uh, nice to me in the summertime. It seems like it would be really good in the middle of July uh, to have a nice cold front where it snowed. However, if your livelihood and your existence and the livelihood and the substance of your family is based upon the growing of your crops and you have a freeze during the middle of the summer, then what's that going to do to your harvest? What will it do to your crops? It's going to completely destroy them and wipe them out, right? Snow is fit for the wintertime when everything is dormant. That is when it is seasonable for there to be snow. And also rain. Rain is good in the proper season, but not during the harvest. When you need to harvest the grain, it needs to dry out so that you can harvest it and it doesn't gather mold once you put it up into storage. So rain and snow are unseasonable and undesirable in the summer and in the harvest. Well, in the same way, honor is not fitting for a fool. It is unseasonable, it is undesirable for a foolish person to obtain positions of rank and honor in this life, to rise up and to occupy positions in the government, positions in society, and especially positions in the church. A foolish man who is elevated to a position of leadership, whether that be as an elder, whether that be as a deacon, or just more informally in the church, this is a very pernicious thing to the good and well-being of the body of Christ, because when the fool has a position of honor, people are going to look to them, and they're going to uh, set back what is good and virtuous, and they're going to set forward that which is a vice and contrary to the will of God. Their bad example is going to have an ill effect upon 
everyone else. And this is why it's not fitting for a fool to receive positions of honor, because if they receive that, people are going to want to be like them. They're going to look to them. They're going to want to emulate them. And so their foolish behavior is going to spread throughout others as well. And this is often a great evil that happens in the world today. In Ecclesiastes 10, 5 to 7, it speaks of it as a great evil that he's seen under the sun. That there are those who, in terms of their virtue, are princes, they are princely people, and yet they're treated like slaves. And there are those who, in terms of their virtue, are slave-like, and yet they're elevated to the position of king or of prince over the land. And this has a very adverse effect upon the good of the people, and certainly something that we recognize and see in our own day as well, that there are many people who occupy positions of honor, positions of influence, positions of importance in our country, in our society, who don't deserve that. Many of them deserve to be in prison or in an insane asylum, and yet they're occupying very high posts in the government and influencing policy and public life that spreads throughout the whole country. And this is a very uh, pernicious thing to the good of the people. Verse 2 says, Like a sparrow in its flitting, and like a swallow in its flying, so is a curse, so a curse without a cause does not alight. A sparrow and a swallow, these birds are given to move about here and there. They're constantly moving, constantly in a state of motion. They never light and land and stay in one place, but they're constantly moving about. So also a curse, a curse without a cause does not alight. It does not find any ground. It finds no standing and it will not come to fruition. Now here, this is dealing with one of the issues that is common in the world today and common amongst wicked men, and that is that people love to curse others, right? In Romans chapter 3, when it's describing the sinfulness of man, in Romans 3, 19 to 21, one of the things brought forward to show how evil men are is that their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. The mouth of men is full of bitterness, and as a result, he wants to curse other people. He wants evil to befall upon other men, and this out of his own wickedness and his own evil. In Psalm 109, Psalm 109 verses 16 to 18, here also describing a wicked man, he loves to curse others, right? He loves it. He has this inordinate, insatiable desire to pronounce curses upon other people. Romans, or Romans, Psalm 109, 16 says, Because he did not remember to show loving kindness, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man, and the despondent in heart to put them to death, he loved cursing, so it came to him. He did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. But he clothed himself with cursing, as with his garment, and it entered into his body like water and like oil into his bones." He loved cursing. He did not delight in blessing, but rather he loved to curse others. And here we are assured that these curses that have no cause, that are stemming from these evil desires in men, that they are not going to alight. They're not going to land. They're not going to come to fruition upon the one who is the object of their cursing. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 109, who do these curses fall upon? 
Well, they come back upon themselves, right? They love to curse, so they will be cursed. They refuse to bless others, so they will receive no blessing. It is a sign of a heart filled with malice, with hatred, with envy, with jealousy. It shows that this person's heart and mind is not oriented correctly toward God because he has no love of God and he has no love of his neighbor. Because if we love our neighbor as ourselves and we do good to those who hate us and persecute us, and we do to others as we would have them do to us, do we want men cursing us, or do we want them blessing us? We want them blessing us. We want them working in such ways to promote our well-being and our good and our blessedness. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. But if we love curses instead, we're proving that we're not children of God. And if we're proving that ultimately these curses are going to come upon our own head and that we ourselves will be destroyed. So the curse that is causeless, a rash, hasty, unjust, angry cursing is not going to alight. They will fall to the ground or they will fall upon our own head. And this is what this is primarily dealing with, primarily dealing with the dangers and warning us about hasty, unjust cursing of others, which is something our flesh desires to do. It is part of our sinfulness is to have mouths that are full of bitterness and full of cursing instead of full of love and compassion and grace and mercy and being a source of blessing to others. Now, of course, in the Bible, there are places here and there where there is curses that come upon But those curses are never done rashly. They're never done unjustly. They're only in extreme examples under severe circumstances that those things are pronounced and that those things come about in the life of the people after much evidence and typically after much work for bringing about blessing upon these people if they continue to resist and they continue to blaspheme the name of our God and Savior, then there is a place for us to shake the dust off our feet and protest against them. But we don't do that without first seeking what? Seeking their blessing. The blessing comes first, and if there is such resistance and such blasphemy of that, then ultimately it may come to that point, but it must be done with sobriety, with an understanding of the justice and righteousness of God, and after much pursuit of their good. Verse 3 says, A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. The whip and the bridle, these are both elements or instruments that are used in order to control stubborn animals. The horse without the bridle is not going to do what you want it to do, right? The donkey without the whip is not going to do what you want it to do. He's going to be sluggish. He's going to be slow. And it is these elements, these instruments that force these stubborn, contrary beasts to comply to the will of the master so that they are useful in doing what they want them to do in order to control them. And so in the same way, the rod for the back of fools. The fool is himself a stubborn, uncontrollable man. Just like a donkey in nature is stubborn and uncontrollable, and just like a horse in nature is stubborn and uncontrollable, you can't do anything with them. They're very dangerous to you if you try to ride them or use them in domesticated purposes. In order to make those animals useful, they have to be controlled with bit and bridle and with a whip. Well, in the same way... By nature, the fool 
is a danger and a threat to society and to everyone around him. And because he is stubborn, if he is left to his own devices, if there's no check or curb upon his sinful appetites, then what is he going to do? He's going to act upon them, and it's going to manifest itself in many evils in society. He's going to commit many wrongs against God and against his own neighbor, and it's going to be a threat to everyone around him. Well, if you give the rod to the back of the fool, then you can alter his behavior so that he does not act upon his sinful impulses. Now, the rod for the back of fools cannot change his heart. There's no amount of beating that can drive the uh, foolishness out of a man. I thought I was going to sneeze for a second, but I lost it. Do you ever lose a sneeze? It's the worst, right? It's the worst. Well, I lost it mid-sentence there. The fool, the fool. You cannot change his heart by a good beating, but you can change his behavior so that he doesn't act upon all of the sinful impulses. And this is good for everyone else because the drunkard who would drive while he's drunk becomes a great threat upon everyone else. But if there is the threat of a severe beating or the threat of execution for someone who's driving drunk, then guess what would happen to all the drunk drivers? They'd quit doing it. And if they're not driving drunk, then who is at safety? Everyone else who's on the road with these people. Whenever the society has very lax, loose penalties for sins, for crimes then it promotes people to commit those crimes. There's no deterrent to keep them from doing those things. But if you have the rod for the back of the fool, and the fool knows that he's going to get a severe beating if he does this or that that he's not supposed to do, then he's not going to do those things, right? He's not going to do them, and it's going to be better for everyone. And this is what we have to understand in terms of government and society and the civil order. There must be proper There must be a clear definition of right and wrong, good and evil, and then there must be penalties that actually deter people from committing that evil. Just penalties that serve as a deterrent for them to commit and to act upon the desires of their heart. And without these things in place, society would not exist. It would be complete anarchy, disarray, and disorder, and you could not have a functioning society. We'd all be living in misery all the time, right? This is why in Romans 13, 3, it says that the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. They are a terror to bad conduct. And what do they possess that terrorizes bad conduct? Well, Romans 13, it's the sword, which is execution, but also they have lesser implements. That is the most severe penalty that the government can inflict upon a criminal. A lesser penalty would be a beating, a beating with a rod. And there would be Uh, certain crimes that would not be worthy of of civil death, but they would be worthy of a good uh, thrashing, okay? And I am one for the reinstitution of public thrashings, okay? So this is what we should, somebody should run on that. They'd get elected, no problem, right? No problem at all. Uh, 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 Rod for the back of of fools, okay? Also, we know in terms of the home and in terms of the children, you know, on the back side, that is good to drive folly out of the hearts of children. It has to be driven through the rod of discipline, through proper understanding of what is expected, 
uh, very clear expectations in the home for the children, not things that are beyond what they can do, but according to their own age and their own limitations, and then very clear penalties for if they transgress and violate those things. And then you can establish order in the home as well. And then certainly as well in the church, there has to be some order of expectation of what is expected of the members, and then what is the repercussions for those things. Not public beatings, certainly not in the church, but the church does have the authority to expel members, to expel people, to excommunicate them as the punishment for those who refuse to repent of their sins. And that's good only for that person, for their own soul, but it also is good for everyone else. When the drunk, the public drunk, gets a beating in public, not only is that good for him to keep him from doing it again, but also it is a reminder to everyone else who thinks about doing that, that if I do that, guess what's going to happen to me? The same exact thing. Everyone else stands in fear and it's beneficial to all others. And then that makes also, this is it makes for a society where there's more access and more ability to preach the gospel. To preach the gospel, to go out and evangelize for the salvation of sinners. Right? That's the hope for sinners, is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But whatever we can do to foster and to build a community or a society where there's greater access to the preaching of the gospel then that's going to be beneficial for everyone, for everyone all the time. It's going to benefit the people. It's going to benefit the families. It's going to benefit the children. Everyone is going to benefit from such a place. Verse 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Here, these two verses almost seem to be in contradiction. The one says, don't answer the fool. The other one says, answer the fool. So which one is it? Do we answer or do we don't answer? Well, they both have to be understood in the proper way according to the context. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him. The fool, whenever he is speaking, one, he's speaking things that are not true, that are foolish, that are in error. When we answer a fool, we should not speak lies. That's what he does. We should not do that. Also, when the fool is speaking, how do they often do it? They're ranting and raving. They're cursing. They're swearing. They're belligerent. They're behaving in that kind of way. Their emotions, because they have no self-control, give rise and they start screaming and shouting and hooting and hollering and do all of these kinds of things. And whenever we're talking with one of them, we're in a debate with one of them, and they begin to get heated and their temper begins to rise and flare, then what is our natural inclination? We want to do the same thing, to get heated, to get angry, to let and to, to give way and to start shouting and screaming at them, and maybe we begin to curse at them as well. Well, if we do that, then we're going to be just like them. Even though we may have the truth, and even though we may be right on the issue or the situation, if we are answering them and, and speaking the way that they speak and descending into the same ill behaviors that they are displaying, then we're not going to be any better than them. So we have to exercise self-control whenever we're dealing with these kinds of people. Also, there may be a time when we don't even answer them at all, where we just keep silent, where they say whatever they want to say, and there's no point in arguing, with bickering, with getting into a debate, but just walk away from them and don't have anything to say to them. Didn't our Lord Jesus Christ do that with the scribes and Pharisees when they brought him before trial? Now, for many years, he debated them. He argued with them. He would uh, talk to them about this or that or bring, bring points forward. But whenever they brought him before trial, 
and they were interrogating him and questioning him, he wouldn't even answer them. He just kept silent before them. And so there is a place to do that as well. And then verse 5, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he be not wise in his own eyes. Deal with him as his folly deserves. Whatever he's saying that is foolish, you need to contradict and refute his foolishness as it deserves, right? Show and evidence and display, you're saying this, but this is not true. This is what the Bible says, lest he be wise in his own eyes. He's going to think that what he is saying is true and right, but you have to prove to him from the Bible that what he's saying is not consistent with the truth of God's word. Verse 6, he cuts off his own feet and drinks violence, who sends a message by the hand of a fool. Here, a messenger is necessary that someone who you entrust to be a messenger, to act on your behalf, that he has diligence, that he has faithfulness, that he be a prudent and a wise, a discerning man who will accurately communicate the message of the one who sent him. These are essential attributes or virtues to be found in a messenger, right? These are as essential to a messenger as feet. Right? Without feet, a messenger, he's not going to be a very good messenger, right? Because he doesn't have feet, and it's the feet that are going to take him here and there. Well, if he has feet but not faithfulness, he's going to be a worthless messenger as well. So the virtues of the messenger are just as important as the physical trait, the most important physical trait, which is that you have feet who can carry you to and fro to deliver this message. Both of them are are essential to have. The more important is the virtue, that he be found faithful, right? And you might as well cut off your own feet and drink violence than send a message by someone who is a fool because they're going to actually do more harm than good. Wasn't this the case in the book of Numbers when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land? Now, all of this was according to the will of God, but when they sent the 12 spies into the land and 10 of those spies They were messengers that were sent out from them to go spy out the land and bring back a report to the people. But what did the ten do? Did it benefit and help the people to do the will of God? No, it actually, it was worse. They were worthless, useless messengers because the report and the message they brought back did not equip the people to do the will of God, but it led them to revolt and to complain and to resist the very will of God, and it brought about great trouble for them all. Verse 7, like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. A lame man who has no use of his legs, his legs don't work, his legs are useless. They have no benefit, right? What point is it to have legs if they cannot carry you here and there, that you can't walk around and deliver a person where he needs to go? Well, the lame man, his legs are useless, And this is the way it is for a fool to have a proverb in his mouth. It's useless to him. It doesn't benefit him. He does not make a right, true application of the proverb, even though it's a true statement, even though it is a good proverb that does communicate wisdom, it is useless for him because it does not lead him to live according to its precepts. It doesn't result in a life of wisdom 
just like the legs of the lame man do not result in him going to and fro. They are of no benefit to him. So this proverb does not benefit him because he does not do what it says. Verse 8, like one who binds a stone in a sling, so is he who gives honor to a fool. Here, exactly what he means in the comparison, the binding of the stone in a sling, but by what it is compared to, giving the honor to a fool is something that is useless. Binding a stone in a sling is useless. It's of no benefit. It's of no value. And in the same way, giving honor to a fool is of no value at all. It is not a benefit because he doesn't deserve it, right? He's not worthy of receiving this honor, and it is not going to be a benefit or a value to anyone. It's actually going to harm them. Verse 9, like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. The drunkard has no perception of what is taking place in his body. This is how it is when they are in their drunken stupor. They don't realize that he has the thorn in his hand. So he has no perception of these things. And so is a fool with wisdom. He has no perception. He doesn't know how to make a proper use of the proverb, of the wisdom that he has for his own benefit or for the benefit of others. And instead, it becomes a source of harm and a threat to him and others as well. It is ruinous to his soul and to the souls of other men when they have some bit of wisdom, but they don't know how to apply or to rightly interpret that bit of wisdom. A clear example of this in our own day is when people will quote Matthew chapter 7, Judge not, lest ye be judged. There are many people who quote that passage, but when they're quoting it, are they applying it according to its true interpretation? They use it to promote sin, to create and to promote relativism in that I can live however I want, you can live however you want, and we can just do whatever we want. It undermines repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it, but is it a true statement? Judge not lest you be judged. Yes, it's true if rightly understood and rightly interpreted. But as it is used in the mouth of a fool, it undermines its true purpose and its true intent. This is as a thorn in the hand of a drunkard. He doesn't have any perception. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't know how to rightly extract it for his own benefit, but it becomes a source of harm and greater problems for him and others. And then when people say and repeat these kinds of things and others trust them, then it's going to ruin them as well. Verse 10. Like an archer who wounds everyone, so is he who hires a fool who hires those who pass by him. The archer, in terms of warfare, they stand behind everyone and they're shooting arrows just randomly. Not randomly. I mean, they're shooting at a target. They're shooting at a mass of men. But when the archer is shooting from a distance, he's not picking one specific person that he's targeting. He's just shooting his arrow up in the air at random, and then it's going to strike whomever it falls upon. He becomes a threat to the entire army, right? It doesn't matter if you're in the infantry, if you're in the cavalry, wherever you're at, wherever you're stationed, in what part of the line, his arrow may fall and it may strike you and it may prove to be deadly to you. This is what the archer is like. He wounds everyone on the battlefield. Well, a fool or one who hires a fool is going to wound everyone as well. 
He's going to wound the master. He's going to wound the other workers. He's going to wound those that he's interacting with. Wherever the fool is, he is going to impact and ruin every single person. His folly will not be contained to only one or two people here or there, but because he is a fool, then his behavior and who he is is going to wound and be a source of problem and consternation to many other people as well. Sin is never isolated in the one person, and it's never isolated just to one or two people. But sin wants to give, it wants to give way to death and to destruction. And it not only wants to destroy you, it also wants to destroy everyone in proximity to you as well. So in the Father, he may have his sins, but those sins are not going to be isolated to him. Those sins want to spill over into his wife, And they want to spill over into his children. They want to spill over into the church members. They want to spill over into the workers. Wherever there is sin, wherever there is folly, it wants to wound not only the person, but every other one it comes into contact with. Because sin always loves to produce death. This is what sin wants to do, produce death within us. And this is why we must take it, we must take it very seriously lest it spread to others and it wound those that are very near and dear to us. Verse 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The dog returning to his vomit. The dog pukes, he expels whatever element he has, but then he goes and eats it back up and he takes it back in to himself. And this is what a fool is like, right? Many people who are fools and who commit sins, They have a moment of sobriety. They have a momentary reformation. They have some guilt and some remorse over what they have done. And they will repent or they will say that they're sorry. They will confess that sin. They will reform their lives, but they do so only temporarily, right? As soon as the guilt begins to subside and go away and the lust is invigorated again, right? The lust may lie dormant for a period or for a season of time, but once the guilt and the shock of the sin begins to, uh, to go away, then the lust is reinvigorated. And because there's no true repentance, then the fool will go back to his folly and he'll repeat it over and over and over again. And this is true certainly with the wicked and with the unbelieving, right? that they will do this kind of behavior over and over and over and over and over again until they destroy themselves. Even for believers... Because we have the flesh, though it will not be to the, to the same degree as those that are unbelieving, there is a sense in which even us as believers, we do behave like dogs sometimes, and we do go back to our sins. And that there are besetting sins or sins that we may be dealing with, that we may be seeking to overcome, and we're making improvements by the help of the Spirit over the course of our life, but we may not ever completely have victory over them in this life. Now, ultimately, we will have victory when? We will have victory in the life to come. And in that way, it shows how foolish we are and how gracious and compassionate and patient our Lord Jesus Christ is with us, that we continue to commit the same folly over and over and over and over again, yet we find that he is merciful to us, that he receives us, and that he continues to be patient with us. Now, 
Does that mean that we should just excuse it and say it doesn't matter, we can just go and live however we... Well, of course not. No way. No one who is a true believer will think in that way. However, if we sin, we do have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. This passage is quoted in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, 17 to 22, there it's applied to false teachers to the false teachers and those who follow them. Second Peter 2.17 says, These are springs without water, mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the one who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. There, they return to their mire and to their vomit completely holy, right? In terms of their entire life is consumed by these things. And these are the false teachers, and they will receive their recompense. Verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Here, throughout this passage, up to this verse, verse uh, the first 11 verses are describing for us the vanity, right, the evil, the wickedness that are found in fools. And when we consider all that he has said, you might think, man, these are the worst people in the whole world, right? There's no hope for such men. However, here at the end of this section, there is one who's even worse than the fool. Even worse than the fool. And who is the one that's even worse than the fool? The one wise in his own eyes. The self-righteous. The one who believes he is the source and fount of all wisdom. There is more hope for a fool than there is for a man who is wise in his own eyes. More hope for profane sinners. For the drunkard, right? For the tax collectors for the prostitutes, for the thieves. There's more hope for them than there is for the self-righteous hypocrite, for the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus interacted with. And this truth is manifested in the very life of Christ. Because tax collectors and prostitutes came to Jesus and they were saved from their sins. And they no longer remained tax collectors and prostitutes, but they were changed. They became followers of Christ. There, in his last hours, there was a thief, a thief who was saved by Christ there on the cross. Was there hope for that thief? Absolutely there was, because he turned from his sins. But who did not turn from their sins? For the most part, the scribes and the Pharisees. They remained obstinate to the very, very end. And this is because there's more hope for a fool than there is for a man who is wise in his own eyes. He is lacking in this attribute, this virtue that is absolutely essential if we're going to believe the gospel. We must have 
humility. There must be humility. A man with no humility who is proud, well, then he's never going to give up his own wisdom, his own thoughts, and submit himself to the wisdom of God. And he is a, he's an immovable man. And this is why there's no hope for such men, right? There's more hope for the fool, more hope for the prostitute, the tax collector, for the thief, than for the self-righteous hypocrite who is wise in his own eyes. Verse 13, 13 to 16 are now describing one specific area of foolishness found in men, and that is laziness, the sluggard. Verse 13, the sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. A lion is in the open square. Here in this proverb, the sluggard is saying that he would go to work, he would go to the field, he would go to the vineyard, he would go do whatever it is that he knows that he ought to do, but there's a potential danger that is in the square, and that is that there's a lion in the road, a lion in the open square, and because of this potential danger, then I can't go do what I need to do and what I ought to do. Instead, I better stay at home. Now, is there typically a lion in the open square? And are there typically lions in the road? It's very rare that a lion will wander into the open square or that even on the road, you'll meet a lion along the way. Typically, they're in the jungles, they're in the wilderness, they're here and there. And even when you're out there, lions typically leave you alone and they're not going to bother you. So is it a good excuse to use the potential threat of a lion to justify not going to work? No, of course not. It's ridiculous. But the sluggard will use any excuse Any excuse is a good excuse for him to not leave his house, to stay in his bed, and not go to work. You know, and there are people who are like this today. Whether it be a lion, whether it be the potential that we might get a sprinkle of rain, oh, well, I better not go out and do anything because there's a chance of rain today. Well, there's a chance of rain every day, and these forecasters don't know what they're talking about half the time. When I used to work with my dad, there was one of the guys And he would always be like, oh, should we go out today? There's a chance of rain coming. Go out and work on the pipeline. And yes, it is hard to work on the pipelines whenever it's raining and whenever it's muddy. But I'd rather be out there than be here in the shop doing nothing, right? And at least you're getting paid. And if it starts raining, what can you always do? You can go back to the shop, right? Roll up the leaves and you head back. But they never wanted to do it. They're always afraid. Using these kinds of lame excuses to not want to do what we ought to do. Well, this is what the sluggard does. Verse 14, as the door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard on his bed. The hinges move back and forth. They turn this way and that way, and this is what the sluggard does on his bed, right? Because we don't sleep just on one side. We sleep on one side for a little bit, and then we'll roll over and sleep on the other side. Might sleep on our back for a while and sleep on our belly for a while. You know, we're always constantly moving, tossing here and there throughout the night. But we're always in our bed. We're always doing this. Well, this is what the sluggard does. He's like the hinge that turns to and fro. He's always in his bed, tossing beyond what is necessary. Now, we all need sleep. We have to have sleep, right? It is impossible for us to function without sleep. And it is true that there are some people who require less sleep, and there are other people who require more sleep. Yet it is also true that there are those who have an excessive love for sleep, who have an excessive desire for it, and many times who sleep long uh, past what is normal and natural because they stay up wasting time in the middle of the night doing whatever they ought not to be doing. Instead, they ought to be sleeping so that they can get up and go to work. But they would rather turn on their bed. 
here and there. This is what the sluggard does. Verse 15, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it up to his mouth again. Now, in some of these, there is a level of exaggeration that makes this look so foolish, so ridiculous. Can you imagine someone so lazy that he puts his hand into a dish, but he can't even bring himself to have the strength to put it up to his mouth? Because typically, those who are lazy are also gluttons, so it's often, it's not a problem. They're happy to go and eat. Yet here, it's showing the ridiculous of it. How ridiculous is the lazy man? He, he's unable to have the strength to even put food into his mouth. This is what he is like. And certainly, there are those that we see in this world who, who live like this. They're actually increasing, I think, in our own country. They're, they are here in an, an abundance. Many people who are able-bodied and who have the ability to work but they're lacking in one essential quality of workers, and that is the desire to work. They have no desire to work, and you can always bet the government will be there to bail them out, right, to buy their votes, and so it just encourages more and more laziness, more and more uh, being a sluggard. Now, we know that there are those who have legitimate issues that prohibit them from working normal, common jobs like others. And in that case, then there should be mercy, there should be help for those such persons, but not those who have the ability to work, yet refuse to do so. Now, ultimately, verse 15 as well, we should apply that spiritually too. And it is especially true spiritually, because there are very few people who have the spiritual strength to apply themselves to the means ordained by God by which we will gain wisdom. They can't even pick up a Bible and read it, even for five minutes a day. It's such a heavy burden for them. It's impossible for them to come to church on a regular, consistent basis because they cannot sit and they cannot endure to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Their mind is constantly wandering here and there, wondering how, how much longer do we have to be here? They cannot give themselves because they are spiritually lazy. They're spiritual sluggards. They are unable to give themselves to prayer, to the Word of God, to memorizing Scripture, to the public teaching and preaching of the Word of God, they will not give themselves to those things because they're like a man who puts his hand in the dish and he cannot even bring it back. He does not have the strength or even the desire to eat. Then verse 16, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Here, though the sluggard's life proves that he is a fool, and everyone sees it, right? Because if he's a sluggard, his life is going to be in complete disarray. It's going to be a constant mess. He's not going to have a normal, functioning life. However, even though he's a sluggard, and even though he's lazy, he is wiser in his own eyes. He's very wise in his own eyes. This goes back to what we read in verse 12. You see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more help for a fool than for that man. A sluggard wise in his own eyes. What a contradiction. Everything about his life testifies that he has no wisdom, and yet he's still convinced that he is the wisest man in the world. And this is often the case, not only with the sluggard, but with all of us. In our own hearts and in our own minds, we entertain the thought that we are the wisest person in the entire world. Each man in his flesh contains thoughts of his own loftiness, of his own greatness, of his own superiority above every other person. This is in us as well, and it must be crucified with Christ. 
The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Seven men, right? a whole company of men, who are able to answer wisely with discretion. Right? And how do they come to such wisdom and discretion? Through diligence, through hard work, through study, right? through attending to the word of God. They have obtained the ability to give a discreet answer by much diligence and hard labor, So they have proven themselves to be faithful, to have true understanding. Yet the sluggard, who won't do anything, who won't even pick up a Bible and read it, he can't even come to church, he won't even come to Bible study, yet he still thinks that he's wiser than these seven men who give a discreet answer. And so we see why it is that there's more hope for a fool than for a man who is wise in his own eyes. So may we then not be fools, and may we not be spiritual sluggards, but rather live a wise life, a godly life, and also be diligent. Diligent, diligently attending to the things of God, right? Giving ourselves to the means of grace that God has established by which we will grow into maturity in Christ. The reading of the word, memorizing scripture, listening to sermons, offering prayers to God, fellowshipping with the saints, attending to the public uh, preaching and teaching of the word of God, These are the things that we must diligently give ourselves to by which we will be built up in our faith and arrive at maturity. Then we will be discreet and we will be able to give wise answers to others. Well, let's pray and then we will be dismissed. And also wanted to mention that uh, we did get a message from Josh and Gayatri uh, and they are having a baby girl, a baby girl. So when that, yes, he actually said, because we were standing here at men's Bible study, and he was telling us that they're having a baby, and a pink balloon fell out of the sky, right into the middle of us all. Casey, you were there, right? And we said, it's got to be a girl, and it's a girl. So lo and behold, they are having a daughter, and praise the Lord for that, and we'll actually see them. They'll be at the wedding in a couple of weeks, so we'll get to see them there and celebrate with them uh, in what God is doing. And I thought uh, we'll think of of a way that we as a church, (coughs) it probably won't be possible for us to do a shower for them because uh, she's getting further along and it's more difficult for them to travel. But maybe we can uh, take up something for them and then we'll deliver it to them uh, to bless them and to show our love and support uh, for them and their family and God's blessing upon them. So let's pray and we'll pray for them and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time to be together today with your people. Lord, we thank you that one of the blessings that Jesus has purchased for us through his blood, Lord, is that when we are reconciled to you, Lord, we are also reconciled to your body, and that we are brought into your body, and Lord, that we live amongst a a community of faith, Lord, a body of believers. Lord, that we are able to share uh, this life with. Lord, share the struggles of the Christian life. Lord, a, a source of encouragement and strength. Lord, with each other, a place for us to practice our godliness, Lord, and to practice our faith. Lord, by loving one another just as you have loved us. Father, we pray that it would be true of us as a church. Lord, that we would truly have a genuine interest and desire in each other. Lord, that each of us would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of our brothers. Lord, that we would always be faithful to fulfill our responsibilities one to another. Lord, by loving and caring for the body of Christ. 
Lord, may we never be those who destroy your sheep, Lord, who bruise and batter them, but rather be those who love and cherish and nourish them. Lord, as well, we pray that you would protect us. Lord, protect us from any, Lord, who would come in secretly to devour. Lord, protect us from those outside, Lord, those wolves uh, that will teach those doctrines that are detrimental, Lord, that are disastrous to our faith. Lord, we know that it's not fitting for a fool to receive honor. And Lord, what greater honor can there be in this life than for someone, Lord, to be a teacher and to have the responsibility of proclaiming your word. So Father, we pray that you would never allow foolish men, Lord, those who are unbelievers, Lord, those who are false teachers, Lord, may they never receive any position or rank in this body. But Lord, we pray that you would give to us discreet, Lord, wise men, men of prudence and faithfulness, Lord, who can for many generations accurately divide the word of truth, Lord, teaching it faithfully and establishing your body, Lord, your sheep in these glorious and wonderful truths of the gospel. Father, we are rejoicing today with Josh and Gayatri. Lord, we thank you so much for this couple. Lord, we thank you for their friendship. Uh, Lord, how it is that we've come to know them over the years. And Lord, we are especially grateful, Lord, for this uh, baby that you have granted to them. Lord, for the conception that Gayatri has received. Lord, knowing that uh, they went many years without the ability to do so. So Father, we see that and we understand that you are the one who gives conception. Lord, you are the one who opens and you are the one who closes the womb. And Father, we thank you that you have chosen to to grant this blessing to this dear couple. And Lord, we thank you for this daughter that is now growing there in Gayatri's womb. Lord, we pray that everything would go smoothly in their pregnancy, or that there'd be no complications. Lord, we pray that she would come to full term and that there'd be a safe and a healthy delivery of their new daughter. Lord, we pray that as their daughter grows, Lord, that they would teach her the fear of the Lord, Lord, that they would raise her in the proper way, teaching her the gospel. And Lord, we pray that you would save their daughter, and Lord, that you would save her at a very early age in life, Lord, that you would set her apart for your purposes, and Lord, that she might be a useful servant of of yours for many, many years on this earth. So Father, we just ask for your blessing to be upon them, and Lord, that you would watch over and keep them. And Lord, that they, uh, this great joy would come to its fruition, Lord, in due time. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today. Lord, bless those who were uh, away from us today. Lord, for whatever hindered them, we pray that uh, if it's sickness, Lord, that you would help them to overcome. Or if there are others uh, dealing with various uh, issues in life, Lord, whatever it is, we pray, Lord, that you would be with them and bless them in those things. Lord, bring us back together again next week, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.